Let me just ask you to tell us a little bit briefly about your backgrounds. Well, um, I am first-generation Australian. My parents are Chilean um, and left Chile in 1969. Um, so I was born in Australia. Um, I come from a Catholic background, um, but nominal Catholic. Um, we didn't go to Mass, but Mum uh, put us into Catholic education. And so in terms of my faith, um, I knew the Gospel story uh, like every good Catholic does um, and visited the 12 stations of the cross and, you know, went to confession and, and uh, I did Mass with the school and everything. Um, but, uh, you know, God was very far away. And uh, for me, as a teenager, I was searching um, for the truth. I think when you hit your teens, as, you know, some of us, when we hit our teens, we're, we're just wanting some sort of reality. And so for me, that was, that was what I was looking for. And after a year of Hinduism um, and going vegetarian, <laughs> which is horrible. Um, <laughs> Praise God. For all those vegetarians, the Lord gives you permission to eat me. Um, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, um, God took us as a family. My parents split up. My mum remarried. It was a very, term, you know, a, lot, a time of turmoil. But God picked us up at that point and put us in a very, very young Pentecostal church. They were meeting in a school hall with tin chairs, an overhead projector. The pastor's wife had the guitar. The pastor was at the front doing his dance. And uh, <laughs> I thought these people were crazy. They were clapping. Um, but when he preached, heard the gospel, and something happened, and I just knew I had to give my life to God. So that was, that was me at 17, and, uh, and I've never looked back since. Tell us about your background. Yeah, um, my accent's Australian, uh, but I was born in Manchester. Uh, my dad stole a loaf of bread when I was two, and we got shipped to Australia for a while, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is why I have the accent I do. But yeah. um, I, I'm, the, I'm the grandson of the communist leader from Wales. So my granddad led the Communist Party in Wales for a lot of years after returning from World War I discovered that um, the government had no money. The only people who had money were the communists. So my dad was raised in a communistic home. And um, by uh, coincidence, it was a God incidence, really, the luck of Jesus, that at the age of 12, he was playing football. And uh, his team were losing 8-1. Uh, and he realized that the reason they were losing was because the 40-year-old man on the opposition team was trying to rediscover his youth. He was scoring the goals. So he thought, the only way we can get back in the game is to take this 40-year-old man out. And so the next time the 40-year-old man was dribbling the ball towards my dad, my dad, instead of going for the ball, went for the man's leg and broke the man's leg. And uh, the man's on the floor writhing in pain, and dad said, I'm so sorry. And the guy said, I'll forgive you if you come to church with me tomorrow. And uh, so, <laughs> you know, what's dad going to say? Uh, yes. And uh, so next day, my dad went to church. He didn't tell his dad where he was going because he would have been, you know, beaten within an inch of his life, and for the first time heard about a benevolent God, heard Jeremiah 29, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, and gave his life to Christ. And so my dad had a radical, radical experience with the Holy Spirit. Um, back in the day when, when Pentecostalism was taboo, people would see them walking down one side of the road, walk to the other. This is in the valleys of South Wales. And uh, then my dad went to Bible college in London, uh, went into ministry, pioneered two churches or three churches in England. Uh, including one in Manchester where I was born, and then at the age of two we went to Australia. And uh, I grew up in Australia. And uh, at the age of 15 we moved back to Manchester. My dad said, you're going to have to be the youth pastor. I said, Dad, there's no youth. He said, precisely, you're the only one in jeans, you've got the job. <laughs> so, so, you know, our, my opportunity to kind of begin in leadership didn't really start with a moment before God. It was just there was no one else, you know. And uh, that was, what, 25 years ago or so, and, and that's been the journey since really. Yeah, and how did you meet? Well, I went back to Bible college in Australia when I was 20, and uh, we pretty much met in the outback of Queensland picking tomatoes in a tomato patch. I was saving money to go to Bible college. Sophie's family owned the tomato patch, and um, her family from Chile, my family from Wales, we met in outback Australia. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, so that's pretty amazing. We have two kids, both born on the 22nd of August, three years apart. Wow. It's because we're disciplined. And... Um, <laughs> 
and there say, yeah. There isn't some special occasion nine months prior to that. <laughs> well, you know, know what? Like, there isn't. There isn't. In your diary, but no? the 22nd of November, for years afterwards, all the team kept ringing us saying, you guys okay? And he said, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're at the movies. <clears throat> That's wonderful. So you, you ended up, or you can tell us how you got there, to become a youth pastor working at Hope City Church in Sheffield. Yeah. So we, we went to Bible college together. Glenn was a year ahead of me. Um, but we ended up Bible college, and that's where we kind of got together. And, uh, and uh, I remember being, um, being at Bible college, and Glenn had to do a practical stint in a church somewhere, part of his course, as part of the, the third-year course. And so he, he just got England on his heart. And uh, knew Dave from the days when um, his dad was pastoring in Manchester. Dave Gilpin. Um, Dave Gilpin in Sheffield. I wrote to him, said, can I come and serve you? And uh, he went over that year and served with, um, with Dave in the really early, early time of the church, didn't he? But when he came back, that's all he could talk about was Sheffield this and, and Dave and Jen and how wonderful they were. And so um, I think it was inevitable. They, they fell in love with Glenn. Glenn fell in love with them and the church. And then um, we got a letter, well, Glenn got a letter saying, after you graduate, would you come and be a youth pastor? Glenn said, I'm getting married. And he said, yeah, bring her. So, um, you know, I thought, thanks. <laughs> I can come too. And, um, yeah, and then we graduated. This is 17 years ago. So we moved back to England 17 mm -hmm. years ago. Yeah, we graduated. Two weeks later, got married. Two months later, moved to England. So you were there as youth pastor at Hope City, and then how did Audacious come about? Indeed, how did the word come about? Well, uh, so we moved to um, Sheffield in 2000 and, no, 1996, Six. 1996, and we were youth pastors for a season for uh, four, five, uh, six, seven years, actually. And in 2003, uh, I was with two friends, one of them sitting on the second row, he's one of our associates now, Stuart over there, and another friend, the three of us were praying. Um, we, we tend to go away for three days of prayer and fasting, and the fasting tended to always go for about a day, and then the feasting would kick in for the next two days. <laughs> so it wasn't really all, you know, all that spiritual, but we had a good time praying and just talking about the things of God. We're in three separate churches, and there was just a moment where um, I was praying. I said, God, help us to be audacious in our steps. And it was like the Holy Spirit sat on that moment. And I opened my eyes, and, and uh, Stuart and Mark, they kind of were looking at me, and I said, that's it, huh? And they said, yeah, that's it. We're called to be audacious. And then one of us said, what's it mean? We went, don't know. So we, um, <laughs> it was before smartphones, so we had to go and find a, a dictionary. Uh, for those under 30, it's basically in a library. It's a book. It's about that thick. <laughs> defines different words. And, um, and we just uh, began to see the definition of, of audacious, bold, daring, dangerous, fearless, unrestrained by convention, free-spirited, original, to challenge assumptions. And then we thought, wow, that's everything Jesus was. You know, they didn't put Jesus on the cross because he was nice. They put him on a cross because he was dangerous. Mm. And so everything, it, it's interesting that he, he used the T.E. Lawrence quote before because we've been using that all last month with our church. Uh, Genesis 37.5, Joseph had a dream. Yeah. And, uh, and we've really been working hard on the T.E. Lawrence quote in the last month. And so it really was birthed there in 2003. So that was audacious. And then what, you developed youth connection through the city and, and so on. And audacious, the conference sort of was birthed out of that. Uh, yeah, uh, we're, we're part of a movement of churches called the Assemblies of God, and so within that, we, we built some really great, credible, viable relationships with youth pastors across the country, and uh, there just seemed to be a heart to see God do something in the youth generation that, wasn't, um, that, that couldn't be defined by what we'd seen. We knew that God had something else, and, um, and so really what happened was we were running a camp that merged into um, a conference for two years. And then there were certain limitations that came, came to us. Um, and then we, on the back of that, then birthed Audacious Conference. And I think first year of conference, we had maybe 800 teenagers at that. And uh, it's really grown from that point. Yeah. So the budget got to about £600,000 for the week for the conference. Uh -huh. And I think for the first three years, we mortgaged our house just to make the conference work. Really? Um, thank God now I don't. It worked. To. So you were, you were a youth pastor at Hope City Church at the same time as this audacious thing was growing. Yeah, we were youth and associate pastors. And so. associate. And tell us about that little transition from youth to associate and whether that Oh, that was a horrible felt transition. Comfortable. Um, so, I mean, the first four years of being in Sheffield, we had a great time. Our pastor, we loved him. We thought he loved us. And then there came a moment in February 2000 where he said, listen, everything you and Sophie are doing with the youth, we want you to do that with the older people. 
And we just said, we don't like the older people. And he says, well, you know, it's kind of, we really feel it's the word of the Lord. And, and we just kind of, we don't think so. And we had, because we had a real heart for, for the youth generation yeah. and couldn't really see ourselves being involved in a youth style conference whilst being involved in, in more, the more senior ministry aspects of church. And he tried to tempt us, said, listen, you can have a car allowance and a phone allowance and a credit card allowance. And we just said, you know what, we're just happy to be with the teenagers. And he said, well, put it this way, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. And we said, well, we don't want to. He says, well, I'll fire you and find somebody else who will. And uh, so we went through 10 months, really, that year of just um, of frustration and arguments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he fired us six times. Um, we resigned six times. Yeah. And, um, but it took until, until October of that year when we were just in a quiet time reading John 12, 27. And it says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains but a single seed. But if it dies, it multiplies. And we all of a sudden learnt the lesson that in order for the dream to live, it has to die. And the upside down kingdom, if you want to be great, serve. You want to be first, come last. And everything seemed backward. And so we were now having to unlearn everything we were taught in Bible college. Because in Bible college, we were taught, be the best, be a great communicators, be, 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 be. And we had these um, people who we had on, on platforms that we would idolize in a sense. But it took four years after Bible college to learn, actually, that's not the key. The key is this, die to it, serve. I mean, the whole revelation that Jesus, Colossians 1, created, all things were created by him and for him. And yet for the first 30 years on the planet, he was content to make tables and chairs. And we just went through this moment of realizing we're going to have to die. Mm-hmm. And so it was a process of the next three years of just dying. Just so there was, there was vision being birthed about what the future could hold with yeah. young people and indeed perhaps more. But yeah. you, you weren't free to just rush off and do that. Not so, at all. Not so at all. How did that feel, Sophie? That felt like um, it, was, it was frustrating. Um, and I think it's just a point that everybody comes to sometimes when you've got a dream, but you can't see how it's going to come to pass. And I think that's where trusting God really kicks in. Your faith actually does kick in where you're just saying, I don't have any um, clue how this is going to work, but I know what God said, and I'm just going to have to trust him with it. And it's almost like you've just got to leave it in his hands and then be faithful, serve, keep your, keep your spirit sweet because you can serve, be faithful, and inside be like, you know, um, don't want to be here, don't like this, you know, but, and yeah. be and be contentious about it within your spirit. But to keep your, your spirit sweet, to lay that thing down and truly be okay with laying that down and letting God just um, have it, I think was the making of us. And we, we tell people all the time if they're in that kind of position. Because we've seen people, you know, um, serve another man's vision, um, get frustrated, <coughs> get, um, you know, uh, feel limited, feel like, you know, restricted, come to a point where there is no opportunity or no no space for what they feel that God has put in their heart. And then we've seen them just buck, 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 and then (coughs) go sideways Mm -hmm. and just say, okay, uh, it's not going to happen here. Therefore, I'm going to take my ball and I'm going to go and do something. I'm going to do what God's put on my heart, um, you know, on my own. Yeah. And uh, although, you know, God... God is gracious and blesses them. I just don't, we didn't want to do that. And so whenever we said, okay, God, you give the dream, then you bring it to pass. You know, we'll be faithful, we'll serve, um, but we're not going to make anything happen. And I think that was the making of us and forged something in our spirit. And I think Glenn and I are both convinced that we would not be doing what we are doing today had we not had let it go then and just and just served. I resonate that personally with our story, which we're not talking about now, but we're talking about yours. Um, so you had this sort of phrase, I'm dying here. Just I'm tell dying. us, unpack that a little bit. Oh, yeah. Every time um, I had to visit an elderly person in hospital, um, you know, to engage with people in their pastoral problems when, to be honest, deep down, I didn't really care about their problems. Um, you know, I was forbidden by my pastor for a season from going to youth. And so every now and again, I would go down to my office on a Friday night just to listen to the youth, you know, in the auditorium. Wow. And my whole thing was, I'm dying here, I'm dying here. And it just became a motto for us that, even, that there were times when I'd come home from, from a church environment and uh, be upset about something. And so if you just look at me and say, you're dying, I'm like, oh, 
you know, I'm dying. And, uh, you know, just learning to deal with it quicker. And then, then I think we learned the lesson that if the Lord wants to kill you, die quickly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. you know. Don't drag it out. Because you've seen all, we've all seen those B-grade movies, haven't we, where somebody, you know, gets shot or something, and they just drag out this death scene. You're like, enough already, just get over it, you know. And, um, and I think that die quickly was probably our, our, our yeah. key. And you'd really grasp that whole thing. And so that, as I understand the mantra, was one was a cry of your heart, like, I'm dying here, I can't bear this a moment longer. But it was also, no, I'm dying here. This is what God has for this season of my life. And you really sure. took that seriously. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you can't escape verse like, um, you cannot be my disciple unless you carry the cross. Yeah. You know, and it, okay. Which we know the cross was the implement of death. And so I think there's, there's an element for all of us to do that. Yeah. So somewhere, was it 2006, seven, things began to change, and Dave talked to you about yeah. the future. Well, it was 2003 that we were sitting in a coffee shop, so three years after this kind of deathly experience that we had, that one of our trustees for our church, who's, um, who leads an amazing church in Australia, he actually turned to Pastor Dave Gilpin and said, you should send Glenn and Sophie to Manchester to plant a church. And we instantly said, oh, that's, that's a ridiculous notion. Why would we want to do that? Because... Because we were dead to any dream, the last mm. thing we wanted to do was give space for any dream to grow in our hearts mm. because the key for us was to die. Um, and yet a little seed sat in our heart on that. You know, Manchester, the city of my birth. Yeah. I support the greatest football team in the world. They wear blue Manchester City Football Club. <laughs> Both their supporters are present today, which is wonderful. <laughs> and, uh, any United supporters? Do we have any United supporters, by the way? Wow. If you could fall mortally queue and leave the building, that would be great. <laughs> of the Holy Spirit. Um, and, uh, but we made a decision in 2003 that we weren't going to talk about it, yeah. pray about it, go to our boss about it, to, uh, the man of God. And our theory was this, if it's God's dream, he can make it happen. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until three years later that our pastor was at the Hillsong Conference in Sydney. He rang me up and said, oh, I need to have a meal with you when I get home. And so while he's flying home, I'm thinking, oh, no, what have I done wrong? Which report did I fill in wrong? Which theological error did I preach again? Because I was quite good at those. Um, I once preached a message called, whoever said it's better to give than receive is obviously a loser. We all know it's better to receive. And and, and I thought it was clever because it's all about, you know, how to receive with grace. And then I sat down and my pastor said, ah, that loser was Jesus. Get up and apologize. Sorry, everybody, forget everyone I said. So driving on the meal, I was a little bit, bit on edge. Yes. And he said, um, at the meal, he said, oh, uh, God spoke to me when I was in Sydney. I feel like you and Sophie need to go to Manchester and start a church. Do you need to pray about it? And uh, we said, oh, actually, we don't need to pray about it. God spoke to us about, about it three years ago. We've just been waiting for you to catch up, which is a great little moment um, on the journey. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only time I've ever been ahead of him on anything. And, and, and so, yeah, so... But what actually transitioned was, was that our pastor already had a campus of his church in Manchester that was um, struggling to get past 100 people, averaged around 90 people. And he actually then said, you know what, in order to help you, he said, I'm going to give you those 90 people. You can have the 250 chairs. You're not going to have any money, but we're going to send you with our blessing. And so it was about a year later, September 2007, that we moved to Manchester and launched Audacious Church. Um, Just tell us a little bit about how that grew because it's evidently incredibly rapid, but just some of the dynamics. You know, it, if I just tell this story, when, when we actually moved to Manchester, um, we made the mistake of thinking that all the ministers in the city would be happy that we were there. Um, and we went to a minister's meeting, and, um, and I was sitting maybe five or six rows back, and, and the, the man who was chairing the meeting was a man that I'd known, who'd been an acquaintance of my dad's for many years before that. And he asked me to stand up. He said, oh, Glenn and Sophie have moved to Manchester. They think they're going to change Manchester for Jesus. We want to say, don't tempt fate, was the comment they gave to us. And uh, so I said, well, and I didn't really, it doesn't really make sense, but I said to him, we're not here to tempt fate, we're here to tempt faith. And so from, from the outset, we went in with a deliberate intention that this thing is really going to grow, um, not on a system of religious rules and regulations, but truly what our faith is, an encounter with Jesus Christ. So that the greatest thing that we can do in any of our Sunday, Wednesday services, Friday services, whatever we do, is to create this opportunity for true, real, viable encounter with Jesus. Because once you see him, you change forever. And so everything's really been about, geared, about gearing up for that. 
I think a lot of people don't um, underestimate. When, when, when a, a couple or somebody goes and pioneers a church, sometimes it, um, it takes a while, it takes a few years for them to, uh, to just to figure out their style, to figure out what their priorities are, to fig figure out what their value systems are. Sometimes, you know, um, uh, that's a process of elimination, you know, and that can take time. Mm -hmm. But for us, having run Audacious Conference and having been part of a very good church, um, a very progressive church, being under a visionary leader like um, Pastor Dave and Jenny Gilpin, um, there were certain things that we already had settled. And so I remember when um, we were at Audacious Conference and we're in the worship, and I remember turning to Glenn before we started the church and said, what do you think our church is going to look like? And Glenn just turned around at the, and, you know, kind of went like this and said, like this. And I went, okay, I can, I can see it. And so we've been doing Audacious Conference for a few years before we even started the church, but had a very clear idea of what our style would be, what our culture would be, you know, the things that were important to us. And so from the outset, we could say to 90 people, this is who we are, this is what we're about, this is what is important to us, this is where we're going. And if that doesn't resonate with you, there are so many good churches in Manchester that you can go to, and we bless you um, to find, you know, your home. But, you know, we had that really, yeah. that we know who we are kind of thing. So the people that left, you know, we were very happy mm -hmm. um, for them to go and to find another place um, where they felt at home. But the ones that stayed, you know, knew what they were staying uh, for. And I think that was a massive advantage yeah. in terms of growing quickly. So they knew you just wanted to go after people who weren't churched and just wanted them to encounter Jesus. Yeah. Just tell us about last year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, um, we set goals in terms of how many people we want to see make commitments to Christ. And, uh, and last year, over the year, uh, our Sunday decisions were uh, 1,003 decisions of people responding to Christ. 1,003. Um, you set a goal for 1,000. Yeah. You got 1,003. What is that, yeah. eh? So that was the first Sunday of last year to the first Sunday of this year, um, 1,003 decisions. And so I think that broke down to something like 22 decisions every weekend that we needed, something like that. And uh, so we have a very clear reporting process uh, that we sit in as a leadership team on a Tuesday. So all the stats, all the reports come to us. We know pretty much where everybody's at. We know um, everything, all the I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed. And so every time the the conversion rate was given to us or the response on a Sunday, we could see whether we're above or below the line in terms of what we're expecting for that Sunday. We've got a, a, a continuing tally in the right-hand column, so if the goal is 1,000 people, I think we went into December needing 140 decisions in December. And praise God, December was our biggest attendance ever in the life of But you're still in the last week leading up to New Year's yeah, Eve, you still yeah. had... We had three days to find, I think, seven people responding to Jesus. You know? <laughs> and uh, so I, I always have a friend, a, a great pastor friend who comes to preach the last Sunday of every year and as we were driving in service, I said, listen, mate, no pressure, but we need seven decisions today. And, <laughs> and uh, if you don't get it, you're not getting an honorarium and, uh, you know, because you don't give me one anyway. So, uh, so yeah. Um, now, yeah. let me just press into that a little bit. A thousand decisions. What, did it, what is a decision? Uh, the first time and recommitments and uh, what, just mm. unpack that a bit. I mean, the Billy Graham talk Association talks about people having 11 encounters with Christ or in an environment where Christ is presented. Uh, I think that they did this, this study that showed that people need to have that many opportunities. And, and we would all be aware that salvation is not an event. It's a process that we go on. You know, the whole, the whole tension of Scripture of salvation, we have been saved, we are being saved, we will one day be saved. And so it's very hard to, to clearly pinpoint the moment. You know? So I grew up in the church. I'm a second-generation Pentecostal pastor, um, and I can't actually take you to a moment, you know, but I can take you to many moments. And so for us, out of that 1,003 decisions, 250 of them were people who'd never said yes to Jesus before. Um, there were 250 of them who were, uh, uh, 500 of them were recommitments to Christ. Yeah, having not made decisions for a long, a long period of time. Maybe they've been in Sunday school as a child, never been since. They know church for christenings, baptisms, funerals, weddings, that sort of thing. And then the other 250 were um, recommitments 
you know, from maybe previous years within, within the five-year type of time yeah. frame kind of thing. And so our church, from that 1,000 decisions, our church grew by 250 people from that 1,000. Um, so 250 were actually added to the church and uh, beginning to work through the discipleship track. So Stuart over here on the second row, he, he's really in charge of the discipleship track. So when people make a commitment and come in, then they're all on his desk and he's responsible. Yeah. And so You have a new Christian gets, Connect team that meets with people immediately on the day. And yeah. So on a Sunday, um, we, we're really keen to make sure everyone feels welcome. Um, we do this thing that we try, I guess it's a little bit embarrassing, but we just say, listen, if you're here for the first time, we don't call them visitors, we call them guests, um, because we don't want them to visit, we want them to make it their home. Um, and so if you're here for the first time, would you put your hand up, we want to give you a bag, and just, we've got some gifts in there, we've got some chocolates, sweets, DVDs, CDs, whatever. And, um, and they put their hand up, and they get a bright red bag. And it's a cunning plan, because everybody in the life of the church, if they see somebody with a red bag after church, they know they're new, and they take them to the Connections Lounge. Um, and everyone says, wow, it's the friendliest church in the world. That, yeah, that may be true, but you've also got a big, massive red bag. <laughs> yes. We don't actually talk says, to each other I am. We're just looking for you. That's the yeah, thing. You yeah. know. And uh, so, yeah, uh, if somebody gets a blue bag and you see somebody walking with a blue bag, it's because they said yes to Jesus that morning. And so the conversation that you, as a church person, would then have with that person is very different. You know, um, Wonderful. So someone simple. carrying a red and blue bag is going to have just a queue of people wanting to welcome them into the kingdom and into the church. That's and it's great, awesome. you know, when people make a decision for Jesus, they get given a Bible, they get invited to go on to, you know, the I Believe course that we run, which is first steps in, in knowing who Jesus is and how to walk that journey. Um, and then, but we're really clear in the year in terms of, we, we've been tracking our church since we started five years ago, so we know month in, month out what the highs and lows are going to be, um, because it's very difficult to change the trend and the rhythm of a church. So we can go into this year knowing which months are going to be numeric high and financial high and which ones are going to be low mm -hmm. because they've always seemed to be that way. And so when we know we're going to have either low-attended month or low amount of decisions, we'll get people like Mark Ritchie over here to come in and he always boosts the numbers of people who are getting saved because Mark sort of mentions Jesus and people get saved. So that kind right. of really helps. You said to me, you get what you go for. You've set a goal now of 1,200 this year. And uh, some of us are shy of goals and naming numbers and pressing into and all that. But um, just unpack that a little bit for us. I'm sure we could learn a lot. The goals, the goals are not really birthed in prayer, are they? It's kind of, we, we, we just look to find something that we find, okay, a thousand was a challenge, um, but what would be a greater challenge? We don't want to go for a thousand again because church is growing. So it makes sense to go a little bit higher. So we increase our financial budgets every year by 21%. Um, and so it just makes sense to do a similar thing with when it comes to souls, you know. So it makes sense to go for 1,200 decisions. And I think when you read the, read the Bible, you know, Revelation says the lamb was slain since before the foundation of the earth. And uh, we had the verse that was mentioned this morning in the first session that um, the seed of this woman will bruise your head. And uh, there is a goal already in the opening part of Scripture. This is what's going to happen. And so I think for us to, to go into the year deliberate and intentional helps us um, to actually build a growing church. And it helps us to remember that we're not about church politics and all these sorts of things, you know, and, and uh, we want our church to be the messiest building in, in the place. We want our carpet to be our servant, not our master, so bring coffee in, spill it over the floor, we don't care. We'd rather hire a cleaner to get it cleaned and have you there than, than have something that's spick and span because we're all about souls. It's all about people finding Jesus. Yeah. And so the goals really help us to focus on, on that. It really does. And so it helps us in, in terms of our programs as well that everybody knows that, that we're not here to, to babysit kids, mm -hmm. you know, or to babysit teenagers. We're here to, to impact our world and, and for them to impact their world. And um, for all of our guys that come in on a Sunday and a Sunday night, we say this is primarily not for you to catch up with your friends. This is for you to go and meet people who are coming here for the, for the very first time so that they feel valued and feel welcome and feel that this is a place where that they can be accepted and actually encounter Christ. You know, I mean, how many times have you been to a church and no one's spoken to you and, you know, and you felt like, you know, you were kind of infringing on somebody else's kind of time with God? Well, that's not the, that's not the church that, 
that we want to create. So just even having that, we're here, what is it, that, that quote, we're something non-members. Oh, church is the only club that exists for non-members. That's right. So everything that we do, you know, has to be geared for that. Yeah. Well, I, I think for us as well, is one of the quotes that's really helped us. Mark Twain said, tradition is not wearing your grandfather's hat, it's buying a new one like he did. And I think sometimes as a church, we can fall into a trap of doing what we've always done without actually stopping to think, okay, why do we actually do this? Mm. And I remember when I was 20 and um, I went to a worship service and I, I saw a drummer start a song hitting the sticks together. Really silly. And I thought, oh, you can't do that, it's church. And then I thought, well, why can't you do that? And then I think for me, I was brought up in a system of religion where for me, I thought we were more known as a church for what we couldn't do than what we could do. So, you know, for me, I wasn't allowed to listen to music that wasn't written by Christian people. Um, the only secular music I'd li- I could listen to was classical music, but we know most of the composers were slightly dodgy people. Couldn't shop on a Sunday, couldn't play sport on a Sunday. So the rules were endless of what we couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And um, I went through a season when I was 15. Um, I was reading uh, where God introduced himself to Moses. Moses said, who are you? God said, I am. And I nearly fell off my bed when I was reading it because I, th- I genuinely thought God's name was I'm not, but his name yeah. is I am. <laughs> and I just suddenly discovered, yeah. wow, God is a permissive God, mm-hmm. not a restrictive God. And then I began to realize in the Old Testament that God invented the idea of party. I mean, the old, the old word is feast, but a good party in, in you know, Nottingham tonight would start at 11 o'clock at night and finish at 4 o'clock in the morning and people wake up not knowing what they've done the night before and how did we get here. But God's parties in the Bible went for seven days. And then I get to Galatians 5. It was for freedom that Christ has set you free and begin to realize, wow, God is this permissive God. It's a God of, you know, of no limits. Um, there are certainly things that we don't do as Christians. We walk in holiness and integrity and righteousness. But it's, you know, it's like with, in my marriage with Sophie. Because I love her, there's things that I don't do. My life's not defined, though, by what I can't do. It's defined yeah. by what I can do, which yeah. is why we've got two amazing children. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and so I think that we've got to help, help society take the focus on what we can't do as Christians and help them see, actually, this is what we can do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned to me John Wimber and a phrase that he said. Yeah, uh, I mean, there were two defining points in my, in my teenage years. One was reading a book by a, man, a minister called Peter Lewis, who I think was from Nottingham at the yeah, time. he still is. He still is. Down the road. Well, there you go. Um, and there was a, a passage in, in a book that he, was, he wrote. It's called The Glory of the Christ. And he said this. He said, when I was a, a young boy, I had a, I had a hero who was, a, I think, played cricket for, for the nation. And I had a chance to meet him and spend a little bit of time with him. He said, the more I got to know him, the smaller he became. But then when I met Jesus, the more I got to know him, the bigger he became. And reading that coincided with reading uh, you know, John Wimber's story and just after you know, several months of being in church for the first time, having had a conversion experience, he, he went up to the pastor of the church and said, when do we get to the good stuff? And the pastor said, what do you mean the good stuff? And he said, you know, healing the sick, raising the dead. And the pastor said, well, we don't do that anymore. And John said, well, what do you mean you don't do that anymore? What do we do? And he says, well, we've been doing what we've been doing for the last two months that you've been coming to church. And John replied, what, you mean I gave up drugs for that? You know, and I think th- th- those were two clear moments for me of realizing there are no limits to who Jesus is. He's great. The more I get to know him, certainly the better he, he becomes. He- Jesus is almost like my wife. Just when I think I know her, she goes and changes on me. And I think, who is this woman? You know what I mean? But more on a cosmic scale. And, and then also the understanding through reading what John said that church needs to be about a power encounter with Christ. You know, we, we can get into arguments, uh, apologetics, theological conversations, and philosophical and sociological conversations about all sorts of things. And, and people can convince us of other things in academia, but one thing people can't do is they can't talk you out of the experience you've had with God. Mm-hmm. So the man who was healed, the, the, the religious leader said, he's a sinner, Jesus is a sinner, and he said, listen, whether he is a sinner, I do not know, but one thing I know, I was blind and now I can see. So if we can bring our people to this power encounter with God, whether or not it's, it's physical manifestations of healing, which we've heard about this morning already, um, marriages being restored, but moments where people can go, that was only God, then they're changed forever. And, and for us, Audacious Church is about that moment. Thank you. Let me just uh, ask you a bit about vision. We're talking obviously visionary leadership, and you're both very visionary leaders. How do you, uh, how do you get vision? Where does it come from for you? 
Um, Good either. Yeah. If you could go on our, on our church website, audaciouschurch.com, just navigate past all the stuff that talks about us being a cult and ignore all that sort of stuff. Find audaciouschurch.com. And, um, and you'll go on our website, you'll go to the vision page, and we've got a real great vision statement to be a God-centered, people-focused, audacious church. But that's not really our vision. That's for Christian people who want to know that we're a Bible-based church. Our real vision, and if you were to ask anybody in the life of our church, our real vision is this, a church that stops the traffic. And, um, and that, for me, the best definition of vision is a clear image of a preferable future. So when we think about church and the church we want to build, it's a church that's numerically so large in Manchester that it creates traffic jams. So we live about a mile from Old Trafford, from Manchester United, and you know when, when United are playing, because it can take up to two hours to drive from my house, our house, to the city centre. Um, on a workday, same journey is 40 minutes. On a Sunday, the same journey is 14 minutes. And so when we're thinking about revival, we're not thinking about gold dust and manifestations of healing and all those sorts of things, though that's great and though we want that. Actually, our view of revival is traffic jams on Sunday. So people are sitting in dual carriageways, you know, the M602 motorway on the way into Manchester or whatever, and the wind, you know, just standing, well, what is going on? They're actually putting the window down. So what's going on? And somebody replies, haven't you heard? God is back, you know? And, um, and so that, that, that wasn't birthed out of a prayer moment. It wasn't birthed out of fasting. Um, it was birthed out of me being frustrated one night, sitting in football traffic. And then going, well, how come church is not like this? Now, back in the 1700s, John Wesley was involved in overseeing a church in Manchester. Manchester at the time had a population of 300,000. Greater Manchester now has a population of near around 3 million. And he, he was involved in the oversight of a church of nearly 19,000 people. Uh, so an equivalent-sized church today is 190,000 in Manchester. That's the benchmark that's already been set. And so when it comes to vision... You know, I know Pastor Paul Scanlon says this. He says, your complaint is your cause. Yeah, exactly. And, and your maybe complaint your is complaint your is your cause. The thing that, the thing that you feel most indignant about yeah. is the thing that maybe God's stirring in you for you to do something about. Absolutely. I mean, and I think for us, it's like, you know, for, for us at large, in terms of the church, you read your Bible and you're like, that's it. That's what I want. You know, Jesus says, I've come to give you life and to the full. That's what I want. It's and, what I want for... And that's what John Wimber said. He said, often we end up in falling into the trap of having a Bible that's unreal. Yeah. We read it, get excited about what God did then, but the moment we don't expect for it to happen in our day, in our church, in our ministry, this book has become like any other work of fiction. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Have you read uh, Holy Discontent by Bill Hybels? No. You haven't? You should. It speaks right into what you're talking about there. So, you know what? He quotes Popeye saying, uh, I can't stand this no more, I can't stand it, or whatever it is, and that thing that God has put in you, you just can't stand no more, is probably God's call on your life to go and make that, that yeah. thing happen. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You talked uh, in our conversation before about finding a place where you feel small. Why would you do that? I love feeling intimidated and small. Um, I, I want to find those places where I feel like I'm a fish out of water, got nothing to say. Um, and really, that's where we first met, you know, in that, in that environment that we've been in a few times there of coming into a place where the men and women of God there are so bigger than who we are, carry a bigger gift. Um, their influence is far bigger. And uh, really, we stumbled on that. We, we really stumbled on that about 12 years ago, where in, in terms of our particular church circle, we, we in a sense knew the who's who in the zoo, um, but realized and, and, and thought, wow, the pond feels really small. And there's got to be a bigger pond. And so we, we discovered about this great conference called Planet Shakers in Australia that God was doing amazing things in. And so we, we, I think our salary at the time was 11,000 pounds a year. And we, we, we scraped up enough to find an economy flight to Australia. Um, I can't remember, it took 40 hours or something silly like that. And we hired a car that broke down three times that week um, at the conference. And it was a 45 degrees Celsius. And we drove to this conference, 3,000 people in an auditorium, we were sitting 30 rows back, did not know anyone, and sat in an environment where everything was far bigger than who we were, what we carried, what we'd experienced, what we'd see, what we knew. And um, we had the opportunity to go into youth pastors' lounges and 
it seemed like at the time, because we were English, nobody really wanted to know about us. And, and yet, the next year we went again. And, um, and then I think in our study of Scripture, we began to realize that actually you are anointed the most in places of intimidation. So the story of David and Goliath should not be David and Goliath, it should be Saul and Goliath. But instead of Saul running to a place of intimidation, he ran away from it. And then David yet found it and he ran into it. And I'm sure that with every step David took towards Goliath, Goliath got bigger and bigger and bigger and the intimidation got greater and greater and greater. But he knew his experience of God. Mm. And so for us, we're just constantly on the lookout for a place that we can go to and, and sit on the periphery and just marvel at how small we are and how big God is. And um, I don't know, I think we just find that in a perverse kind of way Exciting. I think it's brilliant because, um, you know, sometimes when you experience a level of growth, you can think, well, you know, and people start to celebrate you and say, you know, that's amazing and that's really great and uh, aren't you doing well? But I think when you get outside of your, your context and you get into a, bigger, into a bigger circle, you think, well, oh, there's so much more. There's so much more to do. We're doing great co- in comparison to what? There's 3.5 million people in Greater Manchester. We've got a 1,000 and a half of them, you know, there's so much more that we can actually do. And I think continually putting ourselves in those environments helps to remind us of that. We had Gary Clark from Hillsong London last night um, sharing to our Wednesday service at church. And um, beforehand, we were having dinner. And uh, he said, how many decisions did you have last year? And I was, you know, I said, oh, just saw over a 1,000. He said, oh, great. And I said, how many did you see last weekend in London? He said, oh, 200. <laughs> and uh, it was so good. You know, yeah. to hear that he saw 200 on a weekend, yeah. you know, a fifth of what we saw over 12 months. And we could, something we could go, you know what, that's something we can hang our hat on and say, okay, we're not there yet, but we will be. And then Gary was brilliant because he stood up and he preached from um, Zechariah, do not des- despise the day of small beginnings. Mm-hmm. You know, Amen. for the Lord loves to see a work begin. And, and really his message was built around the whole idea that small is relative, so wherever you are, whatever size you're at, whatever you're doing, there will always be small around you. You will always feel mm. small in a sense, you know, and, and don't despise it, but engage with it. Be diligent with it and um, don't be intimidated by the large, but certainly don't despise the small and watch what God is able to do from beginning, yeah. middle and the end. Awesome. Now, you, you keep setting audacious goals and doing audacious things, and things seem to be growing and growing, but it all, I think, comes down to something within you. You're spilling out vision out of an interior life. Can you tell us about that? Tell us about your devotional lives. Do you know what? I, I feel a little bit um, sheepish about talking my devotional life because um, it didn't come out of necessarily... Um, of vision, it came out of um, a difficult situation. You know, um, I, being Australian and coming into an English context for me personally um, was a really was a culture shock. And um, for me, being um, a young woman who really felt called of God, really felt called to to serve Him uh, full time and um, and communicate the gospel and freedom to people like I had experienced it, was very clear to me. Um, but uh, for me personally, I went through a real journey of feeling, that, like we said, that we experienced as a couple um, in, in Sheffield, feeling like there was no opportunity to do what we felt was on our heart to do. Well, for me personally, <coughs> I had that kind of experience where I knew what God had called me to do, but not, did not necessarily see the opportunity um, before me and had to go through my own death experience um, in that. When we got to Manchester, it was kind of like, oh, right, this is it. This is everything that God's got for me. But still felt that, um, that there were things that, that were within me that were holding me back. And uh, one thing, as we started to grow, um, people, you know, struggle sometimes in their faith when they stay small. I was definitely struggling um, within myself as we got bigger. And as every time we, we went to a, a new numeric goal, we hit September, we hit kickoff in church life, I was like suddenly starting to, to think, oh Lord, this is beyond me. This is, this is way beyond me. I, how am I going to pastor these people? How am I going to look after all of these people? And, and I'm starting to, to freak out slightly. Well, something happened within me that I wasn't even aware of. And I, about two years ago, an old, 
I'll be speaking about this more um, in the seminar that we do later, but I stopped sleeping. And that really um, put me in a situation where I knew that if we were going to do what every, everything that God had put in our hearts to do, something had to change on the inside with me. And, um, and I discovered uh, God's presence after 20 years of being a Christian in a way that I'd never experienced it before. And I just realized that as leaders, um, God puts big dreams within us, but he has to grow us in order <coughs> to have the capacity for those, for those dreams. And um, I think my journey has been to get into God's presence and to stay there um, until his truth becomes my truth. And it doesn't just become my understanding. Because sometimes we can preach from the word and we can talk about the word and we can sing the word and we can, um, you know, counsel people with the word. But often there is such a disparity between the word or the truth that God, God has for us and the actual belief system that we live by. And we're not even aware of it. So sometimes, you know, we can say, yes, we need to live by faith and not by sight. But really, our belief system is, um, I'm going to do whatever I can in my strength until it runs out, and then I'm going to cry out <coughs> to God, and he's going to come in his grace, and it's going to be wonderful. When actually God says, you know, my grace is sufficient for you, you know, it's, it's, it's something that um, he wants us to depend on, not just when we run out, you know. And so that, that has been um, a revolution for me personally, but also for our church, because they saw me um, in really walking through that, and just realizing that if I want my church to experience the presence of God in a, in a, in a way that we, is unprecedented and that we haven't seen before, then I have to go first. And, uh, and that's where God's really, um, really had me. And it's, been, um, it's really been powerful for us as a church, hasn't it? Uh, what does that look like? Can I just yeah. press into that a little bit? On a day-to-day -day basis, like a week-to-week -week basis, how do you interact with God and with Scripture and so on? I think I never understood what it was to meditate on the Word. I knew what it was to pray, to praise, to worship, but meditation became um, my medicine. It became my oxygen. Um, when you're not sleeping, it's not something that you can rectify. It's not something that you can actually fix. Um, and so the only thing I knew to, that I could do was to get into God's <coughs> presence, and that became my medication. That became um, what I needed to do. The doctor had said that um, uh, depression was trying to grip Sophie's soul and her mind. And uh, a friend of ours from Australia who, who is a leading psychologist, and principally because he was a church leader, he had a, a nervous breakdown and uh, went through this process of, of recovery, quite a lengthy process. And then on the back of that, went to university, studied psychology, and now he does the same sort of thing in terms of helping pastors and ministers and church leaders through it. Um, we have him every year come and do one-on-ones with our staff just to do staff evaluations and just say, hey, how we doing? You know, we believe in faith. We believe in Jesus, sure. But we also believe in common sense and the things that we need to do for ourselves and, and things that we've just not even seen. Mm -hmm. And so he said to Sophie, um, need to do three things. Uh, take two or three days off a month in, in one place. Um, exercise and, and meditate and She'd been not sleeping through this whole process for about 14 months, I think. She would not sleep for six nights, sleep on the seventh night for 15, 16 hours, wake up and, you know, and it was amazing. Uh, the team were brilliant during that time. Mm -hmm. But when Sophie broke this through her personal disciplines with the Lord, that was no doubt a turning point in our church. Um, the week that she slept, she didn't just sleep, but she carried the presence of God mm -hmm. in an unusual way. Mm. And I think church has probably doubled in size since that moment. And we can point to great ministries and programs mm -hmm. and that. But actually, the key was Sophie's yeah. perseverance in this area. Yeah, yeah. Um, Thank you, Sophie. Could you tell us a bit about your interaction with the scriptures and with the Lord? Yeah, mine's completely different to Sophie's. I, um, I, I run four mornings a week, and so I, I tend to listen to podcasts at that time, podcasts when I'm in the car. At that time, that time being for the intimidation of us all. Oh, really? Uh, 6 a.m. 6 a.m. start, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then my, I have a day and a half a week, which is study, reading, and prep time. It tends to be Wednesday afternoons, Fridays all day. 
Um, and, uh, but my daily routine with scripture tends to be an hour and a quarter to an hour and a half of uh, reading a chapter from the Old Testament, a chapter from the New Testament, asking questions about it, trying in my own strength to do my best um, exegesis of it, and maybe even a, a simple hermeneutic of it, you know, or homiletic for, for maybe sermon preparation, but really try to fight the whole idea of reading the Bible to preach sermons, because I think sometimes when you're preaching four or five times a week, the need is so great to find another sermon. And so I would do, and uh, I, I read, so I ask preaching questions. preaching four or five times a week? Yeah, in different contexts. So it may be, um, up until recently, we've run Sunday, Sunday school, Sunday morning, adult Sunday school, which has now gone to Wednesday. Um, you know, traveling as well, Friday, Saturdays. I tend to be away 10 days a month. How many, how many miles have you flown in the last decade? Oh, I've been to Australia about 100 times um, in that time. That'll and do. And this weekend you're off to? Uh, is it this weekend? Kent, did you say yeah. you go? Kent. And yeah, then you, so was Kent. it last weekend? You were in uh, Calif- California. Yeah. California, yeah. Two days. So you're, so you're speaking in lots of different contexts and yeah. writing lots of new talks. Yeah. Um, and, and, and with preaching, always, always learning how to do that better. It's, it's never, you know, I, I'm constantly not happy with my communication style. Um, not that I'm hard on myself, but I'm always seeking to be better, yeah. reading books on homiletics, trying to get the best assessment on, on how we can improve in that. But, but for my quiet time, it's, it's basically reading a chapter of the old, a chapter of the new, writing as many notes as I can, asking questions on each verse. Why does it say that? You know, opening a simple Hebrew and simple Greek. What does that name mean? What does that place mean? Why does it put it that way? And then on the back of that, having done all that, I then read Matthew Henry's commentaries, and uh, Matthew Henry, you know, was a minister in, in Chester two, three hundred years ago. But he, for the last three years, has probably been my greatest mentor through Scripture. I feel like I know him personally. Um, when I got to the book of Acts, I kind of thought, wow, Matthew's changed. His, his writing tone changed. And I discovered that he actually died by the time he got to the end of the book of Acts. And his contemporaries took his sermons and put it together. But it wasn't quite like having my mate Matthew mm. whispering in my ear during the study time. And your mate Matthew's great thick commentary or commentaries. Yeah, one but of, it's all online. So it's one of 10,000 theological textbooks, textbooks your father left you. Yeah, so dad was a theologian. Um, he was a far, far wiser man than me. Um, he had a photographic memory. So I could go into my dad's office and say, Dad, I'm, I'm studying some theological thing. He'd say, fourth bookshelf, third shelf down, fourth book in, it's green, page 222, 224, second paragraph down, the answer's there. He was a freak. <laughs> so uh, when, when he passed away, he died two months to the day after we got married. Uh, we inherited 10,000 books. I looked at them and went, I'm, I'm not going to read them. So we go 5,000 away um, to a Bible college in Australia, moved to England, shipped a few more thousand over, and have slowly been giving them away. So, Wonderful. yeah. Wonderful. I mean, I've still got a lot of them, but... That's wonderful. We could talk for another couple of hours, but sadly our time has come to the end. Where It's just been wonderful hearing about vision and dying to vision and the Lord raising it up again and uh, you know the, the depth and spiritual depth. It's not all about being shallow and just being entertaining for the you know, people who come towards you. So thank you so much. We'd love to finish. If Let's applaud them first, shall we? Thank you.